and welcome back to The Rewind. I'm Josh, and this is a podcast where I watch a bunch of movies and talk about them with my friends. Today, I am joined by recurring guest and friend Fred Cobb to start a little bit of a series as we're going to revisit a lot of the films in the James Bond franchise because, you know, we don't really have a lot else to do right now, so we're watching old movies, and Fred pitched me this idea of kind of going back and working our way through some of the different eras of James Bond and talking about them as we kind of work our way up to No Time to Die in the fall because who knows that might be the next time we can actually go to a movie theater at this rate given uh where our country is right now in this crisis uh fred thanks for being here and thanks for bringing this great idea to me well thank you very much for having me i'm very excited to get started on this i was pretty upset when no time to die got moved to november that was the first i think major release that was actually affected by the coronavirus and then every other studio pretty much followed suit and started canceling their summer release plans um so that's unfortunate, yeah. but I'm glad it gives us the opportunity to take a bit of a deeper dive into the history of the Bond franchise and hopefully uh, present a bit of a bigger picture before No Time to Die comes out in November. Yeah, well, we were talking about the uh, just it's it's the announcement of it being canceled and the timing with Daniel Craig uh, um, hosting SNL. <laughs> timing timing is hosting of SNL in <laughs> conjunction with the release, and then the movie getting pushed back before his SNL episode was even taking place. And it was very funny. And I just kind of realized as we were uh, starting up the podcast that like, I mean, it was only what two months ago now when that happened, but like it just, it's just kind of crazy to think where we were at that point. Cause we were just thinking about it in terms of like, we had no idea where our country would be at this point now, but at the same time, it was like, it was like, Oh yeah, well that doesn't really mean much because like, we just thought of it as like a thing that was like in China and other parts of the world, much more so than here. And like, Oh yeah, like bonds a very international thing. Like that's not going to happen to all these other movies and right. maybe we thought that a couple might be coming down the pike that like might heavily rely on international box office but like at the moment where they announced the no time to die getting delayed we didn't actually know that like we would have no movies we just thought that like a couple that like we're gonna make a strategic decision to you know move to a different part of the year when like they wouldn't be affected internationally when they found like an open slot so they were kind of smart in that regard because i think they picked a weekend in november where like is it going to around thanksgiving i think so i'm sure it'll do very well um yeah i think that's right and once a major release like that is taken up a weekend especially this late in the year when some of the studios hope to present their oscar hopefuls it'll be difficult for some of them to shove in their releases this year still yeah i mean it was smart for bond especially because like there's no other big blockbuster movie at the end of the year besides Dune, assuming Dune's still happening. Mm -hmm. I, I think they probably fit. I think they finished filming Dune, so who knows? Maybe that'll still happen on time, but there's like not a Star Wars movie. And uh, I mean, I guess I, I think Black Widow might have gotten moved back to there around that area, so maybe there's a Marvel movie there to provide a little more competition, but just a very smart thing they did at the time. And uh, unfortunately, though, it was like a sign of things to come in a way we did not realize. Um, but uh, yeah, so we're, we're, we're going to kind of start off with uh, talking about early Bond movies today with. Uh, Goldfinger and From Russia with Love, which were the, I guess, what, third and second Bond movies, respectively, in the That's correct. from the Sean Connery area, era of James Bond. So Fred's just joining me today. I think we're going to be joined by a couple of other other recurring guests later on to talk about different eras or different other Bond movies for that we're going to group together for various reasons, whether they be because of the tones of the movie or uh, just the actors that are – or the time – or just the general – uh, more modern version where you have like Pierce Brosnan and Daniel Craig. So we're going to have different uh, groupings of movies to go with a few other episodes over the next few months, because it looks like we have plenty of time now to revisit whatever we feel like, because that's mm. unfortunately the situation with the movie theaters right now. But today we're starting with From Russia with Love and Goldfinger. From Russia with Love, like I said, was the second Bond movie. It was released in 1963. It, uh, actually ties in a little bit to the first movie, Dr. No, because it involves Spectre, who is obviously an organization that's, you know, omnipresent through a lot of these Bond movies. And uh, they are, you know, trying to plan to kind of get back at Bond because he got one over on them in Dr. No. And we uh, pick up with them uh, putting together a master plan. I'm going to have some thoughts on this master plan, Fred, uh, <laughs> put together by uh, a, chess, a, a Czech chess grandmaster that goes by Kronstein, who is otherwise known as number five inspector and he's putting together a plan to kill james bond by luring the british into a little bit of a back and forth with the soviets so they could get a uh procure a soviet lector cryptography device but they were going to have bond do it for them i'm not going to try and explain this plan at the moment but 
it, needless to say, it involves uh, wanting to kind of start some shit between the British and Soviets and using a uh, woman named Rosa Klebb, who was number three within Spectre, to, but also used to work uh, within the Soviet counterintelligence agency to lure a, another woman who actually does work for Mother Russia named Tatiana Romanov as a honeypot for James. And uh, yeah, if, 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 if you're having trouble following me, then you're probably not alone. But I mean, I, I, I don't not that's not to say that, like, I mean, uh, the movie's bad or anything, but like, I think. It's a very dense pot, which I think is an interesting contrast to Goldfinger, which is actually, uh, I'd say, a very lean movie. It's shorter and probably just doesn't have as many plot mechanics going on. So I think there are a couple interesting movies that this uh, franchise goes with in back-to-back. Fred, I guess I'll start by asking you, even before we get to your general thoughts on From Russia With Love, as someone that has seen all these movies, and I should straight up say right now, Fred is more of a Bond scholar than I am, and he has seen all the movies. And I, I'd say I've probably Repeatedly. seen— Oh, okay. You've seen all of them repeatedly, whereas I've probably seen the majority of them and only a handful of them on multiple occasions. And I've I've seen both of these movies we're talking about today, but I hadn't seen them since middle school. So Fred knows them a little more than I do and can probably uh, take a step back a little easier than I can and kind of speak to these different eras that we're going to be examining over the next couple of months. Uh, Fred, how do you like, aside from it being obvious, like it was new at this point, do you think of anything that's like very distinct about this era of Bond, the Sean Connery early Bond era in a way that sets it apart from just all the other Bonds and all the other eras of Bond that we have? Is there any, any theme, any, anything about the look, anything about the, the different plots or just Sean Connery in general that comes to mind that makes you think, oh, well, that's kind of like a, um, that's kind of like a signature of this era of Bond. Mm. So to kick things off, I would say that From Russia With Love is probably the perfect embodiment of what this era of James Bond was meant to represent. Um, So when Ian Fleming first started writing his books in the 1950s, um, they sold relatively well, but they weren't big successes of the kind that would justify a movie franchise that's been going on for 50 years now. The first time they really got major attention in America and internationally was when President Kennedy actually gave an interview with Life magazine and put From Russia With Love as one of his top 10 books of all time um, on his list. So that obviously got attention. And it's fairly obvious when you also just funny you said that because i just looked at the release date and it got released the Mm -hmm. movie the movie got released six weeks before he was assassinated (laughs) yeah apparently that was actually the last movie he watched in the white house before he went to dallas where he was assassinated a few days later so this was uh presumably the last movie he ever watched before he was killed jeez um but when you look at from russia with love it's kind of uh obvious why this uh material would have appealed to kennedy because right. it very much feeds into the uh, the Cold War era that was really heating up at the time. The Cuban Missile Crisis had just occurred a few months prior. And the whole idea from Russia with love uh, was really about the British and the Russians trying to outgain each other in terms of gathering intelligence. And that's something that I really enjoy about the movie, that it very strongly features that atmosphere of distrust where everybody tails everyone, uh, people are suspicious of the motives of the other side, they're never entirely sure if people are listening in. And Ian Fleming, who was actually a spy in World War II, uh, the guy who wrote the books, yeah, uh, he had a very good understanding of all of that, and he really tried to, on one hand, glamorize the life of a secret agent, but at the same time, he had a lot of experience that fed into his books, and that's what made them attractive, ultimately, uh, to be adapted for the big screen in the early 60s. So would you say that, like, uh, this movie more so than most of the others, and, or maybe even this era, like, kind of captures current events almost in a way more than other eras of Bond? Is that a fair statement? I think the Bond movies were always very good at adapting to the eras that they were set in. Yeah. Um, but, of course, the Cold War was such a strong, all-encompassing affair that was going on at the time in politics. Uh, it dominated... Uh, daily activities. People were concerned that one day they would wake up and find a mushroom cloud outside the window. So that was really the era where the Bond movies got to uh, create a reputation for themselves. And that's why I think they ultimately lasted for so long, because at the time they would churn out a new Bond movie every year. And people always uh, were reminded that 
Um, the Cold War is a major thing that is going on in cinema. It was a big thing on television at the time. Uh, the Man from Uncle started in the 1960s. The Mission Impossible uh, TV series heavily fed into that. Yeah, so, I just watched Doctor Strangelove for the first time two weeks ago. Oh yeah, which came out I think in 66. 66. Yeah, okay. So, so also very much a great example of uh, the concerns uh, that were dominant in American culture and society in the ni- 1960s. And it was very much the same in Britain as well. So From Russia with Love, um, especially once Kennedy said that this was his favorite book, was the obvious adaptation uh, that they went for as their second film, especially because Dr. No really only tangentially dealt with the Cold War. And so From Russia with Love, I think, was really the big intro to the major themes that the Bond franchise would address throughout the 1960s. Gotcha. Yeah, I actually messed up that Dr. Strangelove was January 1964, so like three months after this movie. Uh, So yeah, that stuff was just like kind of omnipresent in culture. And I guess what I'll say then about uh, my thoughts on this movie, because I I, kind of get what you're saying about how it kind of like, its breadth probably gets at a lot was going on in the time. And I guess my thought would be that I think I would have like enjoyed, I think the the plot works. I just, I had to be thinking about it a lot more than I really wanted to during the Mm -hmm. movie. And I, I I had to take a step back and think about it for a while after, and I was like, okay, I think I think this all tracks. But at the same time, hearing you explain that and maybe what makes this movie actually work with regard to what's going on at the Soviets, I think I would have rather just like not been a not the movie just. I get it; they're trying to build on the success of the first, but like I think I would have rather Spectre just not been a part of it. And mm-hmm. I, because I kept thinking as I'm watching this, like. Why are they trying to like start some kind of like this guy has this master plan and it's very <laughs> intricate, has all these steps, and I'm like, this guy's plan has like twice as many plan- steps as I think it think it think I think they think it needs. Like, and it of course also depends on people making the exact right decisions to factor into what he anticipated would go on. Sure. Definitely. And but even even setting that aside, I think I was like, why are you like trying to start like a war? between uh, an actual war, not just a cold war, between Britain and Russia in the middle of this very intricate plan where you need every single one of these steps to go right, not to mention, like Fred (laughs) said, all these people making a specific choice that you don't really have total control over, and you're just like murdering people, making making other people think the other side is murdering them. You're starting massive shootouts, which, yes, are fun to watch, Mm -hmm. but probably make everything a whole lot more unpredictable and harder to like actually like get all of your events to like click into place in the exact order you need them to and it's like how could you like plan that in let alone the characters doing what you need them to do how can you like plan for like a massive shootout to go exactly the way you want it to i mean like i guess yes you 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 train this uh you train this guy this uh grant to like be the guy that's like kind of keeping everything on track but like this is like this this whole thing going on at the gypsies, and we'll talk about the gypsies. But uh, <laughs> this whole thing is shootout at the gypsy compound. Like, you can't. There's like a hundred people involved in that. Like, you can't like guarantee that's going to happen. I'm just like, spend the whole time thinking. It's like, like you could just kind of lure them into like. I mean, I get it. Like these people di- could have just lured Bond with the woman. He's been lured by many of women before. And they were, yeah, they were already going to be suspicious anyway. So maybe they wanted them to just think that the Russians were onto them the whole time, so they wouldn't suspect Spectre, and that's why they needed to do that. But it seemed like they made their made things harder on themselves throughout the entire movie, and that just like put on like ten layers of plot that I had to think about. And I was like, <laughs> if they were, it'd be fine if there was all this plot. If I wasn't also questioning the like the actual decisions of like one of the main parties the entire time because of it, but I was. But like I ultimately don't knock the movie too much because I think I was able to connect all the dots. Mm-hmm. But you see what I'm saying? Where it was like I kept thinking the whole time, like you guys are making this self like way harder on yourselves than you have to. Yeah, but to an extent, that's also what the Cold War was all about. You said you just watched Doctor Strangelove a few days ago, yes. and wasn't that whole movie also about how a whole bunch of different decisions were made long before uh, a catastrophe happened, and now that the actual disaster was playing out? There were so many different contingencies in place that people weren't really sure how to handle it anymore. So I think to an extent that also fits right into the era where people had all of these ideas and crazy plans for how to get the upper hand on the other side. And then, of course, as soon as somebody did something different than you expected, you had to readjust very quickly. And And I guess that's what that entire sequence on the train is and from Russia with Love is like everyone just keeps having to go back and forth. Like once they realize, oh, no, 
this guy's dead now. Or the other instance I was thinking of, there's a bunch of different revelations about Tatiana just on the train and what, where her allegiances actually lie. So there, there, there is a lot of examples of people having to kind of adjust on the fly. And I, and I guess I think I kind of, it all maybe clicked into place for me a little better on the train sequence once we got to that point. But I just felt like I spent like a large segment of the movie just like not really getting what Spectre was going for, I guess. And that, that was my biggest thing. And I, maybe it would have been more interesting to just be like a straight, um, kind of like a straight thriller between the British and the Soviets, which I guess would actually be kind of unusual for Bond as we know it now. There's usually obviously some larger bad actor, but I guess I just found myself like a little lost. But my point being that like, I, th- I think that might be more on me for just like not following all the intricacies or getting too mad at myself for not get- getting every single plot detail where I think you can just kind of appreciate the mood. Mm. So my understanding of the big scheme was always that they wanted to get their hands on this brand new innovative decryption machine. Do we know what that even? Do we know what that even means? Or is that just like a MacGuffin? Like, is that was that an actual thing? <laughs> so I don't really know a lot about Cold War cryptology specifically, but I assume that each side kept coming up with different ways to encode messages they would send to their spies right, uh, right. in hot zones all over the world. And I assume that was just the latest iteration of so what the Russians that, that come might, up with. So like that might have given them some the like the the British some kind of way to like break Russian codes or something like right. that. Right. That's why the British were so eager to get their hands on it. And as mm. far as Spectre is concerned, my assumption would always was always that they wanted it uh, to either blackmail one of the two sides, or to sell it back to the highest bidder, Hmm. Uh, which is something that they actually sort of go for in Thunderball, uh, where they steal nuclear missiles and blackmail several governments uh, and ask for ransom money. So the other thing that I find interesting about From Russia With Love is that we obviously get to hear the bad guy and we get to see him from behind, but the actual villains that really orchestrate most of the plan are the henchmen here. They're not really the ones who want to take over the world, who are calling the shots. Uh, they're mainly just people who are part of this organization uh, that is Spectre that we don't really know all that well yet. And Dr. No was one of the henchmen. He was introduced as uh, basically the first guy yeah. from that organization that Bond comes across. Yeah. And then, yeah. Well, I was going to say, I, I really did actually like grant as a character and i felt like he was more charismatic than what a lot of these kind of main henchmen enforcer types have been in recent bond movies and the the thing that always sticks jumps to mind for me when i think about that kind of person while he wasn't supposed to serve as big of a role maybe was um like dave batista inspector you know Mm -hmm. like that guy can act like if you've seen the guardians of the galaxy movies, you know, that guy can be funny. He can be charismatic and he can actually like act with like some serious dialogue. If you look at what he did at the beginning of blade runner 2049, like I actually really yeah. like, even though it was like a brief scene and, and inspector, they just turn him into like a nothing character. That's just there to throw people against walls. And I actually yeah. thought grant was like pretty charismatic and resourceful as opposed to just like a big piece of muscle that's there. And I actually kind of like that part of it. And Robert Shaw is a terrific actor, mm-hmm. uh, which he gets to show off yeah. third, uh, 12 years later in Jaws, actually, right. as Quint. And I find it fascinating that this was really one of his first big international parts. And he doesn't do a lot of talking. Most of the time, he's just kind of on the scene. Uh, he looks grim. But he's always lurking in the shadows, and I think it makes it all the more effective when we finally get to hear him talk. And he really does, and, and, and he does rise to the occasion in that train scene when he actually does have to kind of play a bunch of different roles very quickly. Absolutely, yeah, he's pretty convincing as uh, the British gentleman initially, mm-hmm. and then later, of course, once uh, he reveals his true intentions, he's a pretty menacing guy. And I think for somebody who is really just uh, the typical blonde, aggressive, largely mute henchman, uh, a staple of the franchise, I think. He originated that particular stereotype exceptionally well, actually. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I, I agree. Uh, talking about this big world and this big canvas this movie paints on, can you justify the gypsy digression? <laughs> <laughs> I, so I've never actually read the book, and I'm not sure if it's in there. Uh, yeah, I, I will say the actual gypsy fight itself is largely superfluous and obviously just one of those showy set pieces mm-hmm. meant to uh, showcase the specific location this is set in, which 50 years later looks a little strange, to put it mildly. <laughs> but I do think it sets up a fantastic action scene. 
when the raid actually happens and Bond, Karen Bay, and the other people in the camp have to defend themselves yeah. uh, from the Russian attackers. And I think that is a fantastically shot, fantastically scored scene that really stands tall as one of the most impressive um, sequences uh, in the Connery era. Yeah, we're coming up on 60 years since this movie was like was filmed. So, I mean, it, pretty impressive when you think about it in those terms. I was just like, I was like, why are we here? And then, look, I we don't need to go into like uh, a big discussion with us being the voice of authority on the sexual politics of early James Bond movies. I just don't really want to have the two dudes, ha- <laughs> two dudes having that conversation. Maybe we'll have a woman join us on one of these other podcasts and I'll feel better doing that. But it did feel like it was like for the, for the first large chunk of that, I was like, why are we here? It just feels like an excuse to watch gyrating bodies. And mm-hmm. I was like, I, I was like, I, I, and, and, and then sure enough, even after the action scene, it's like, Oh, these women are going to go uh, sleep with James for no reason, just because they were told to by some man. And I was like, yeah. okay. I was like, uh, I did, did we really need this could this have, could this time have been better spent elsewhere was kind of what I was thinking but at the same time I was like yeah it did give us a good action scene so uh, I mean maybe uh-huh. maybe, maybe it's uh, maybe it's all a wash but I was just like this feels like a weird digression I don't know why I'm here did I miss something or did it just seems like Karen Bay just likes hanging out with gypsies was really what it kind of came down to and that's why they ended up there and then the the, the Russians are tracking them and then shit goes down uh-huh. It is a bit of a show-stopping scene in terms of the actual larger mechanics of the plot. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, Terence Young really is a pretty solid director. And he did Dr. No. He would come back for Thunderball two years later. Um, and he really did have a pretty good grasp on how to shoot early 60s action scenes when obviously they didn't quite have the abilities and the resources yet that Bond movies have nowadays to do a lot of the really fancy car chases and fight scenes that we take for granted now in the Pierce Brosnan and Daniel Craig era of the franchise. Right. Well, what, 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 what I guess I should, I guess I should ask, cause it's, a, I mean, it, it is a pretty big part of the movie now and I'm, and I, I don't, I don't even necessarily mean in terms of like the uh, questionable sexual politics of this movie or anything, but what did you think of just the, 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 the threat of the movie of the actual like cat and mouse game between James and Tatiana, which for, which I thought, what I, one thing I thought about it was interesting was like, yeah, it's like, uh, I, I, it's not even really that problematic that they 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 go to bed together so early because like she is playing him and he kind of has to go mm-hmm. along with it because you know he's trying to like kind of feel out whether or not like this is a trap or not and and I, I guess my thing was that I was like for for a large chunk of the movie I was like I was had myself thinking like what does she actually think the best case scenario here is like what is she actually thinking and I I, I guess I just had to remind myself at a certain point like wow I guess like you got to just remember she thinks she's serving her country the whole time. Uh-huh. And then I guess I just forgot about it. Cause she plays her, I think she plays her role so well. I'm forgetting the actress's name at the moment. Um, Daniela Bianchi. Yeah. And I, I guess it was almost like she tricked me too. It was like, it was kind of like, wait, is she, I, I was like thinking to myself, Oh no, she's in over her head. What is she doing? Does she know what's going on? And you re- you got to remember, it's like, yeah, she has no reason not to think things are going according to plan. So it's kind of funny. Mm-hmm. I was, I caught myself later in the movie, like kind of like having to rethink everything that came before it, but not in a bad way. It was just like an, Oh yeah, she actually kind of maybe has been playing him too. And I, I, that was just kind of like a fun little thing I caught myself doing. Yeah. So first thing about the actress, it's kind of intriguing. She was actually Miss Universe in 1960 and that was actually how a lot of early bond girls were chosen uh primarily by their looks and their achievements in beauty pageants wow um, really guys you couldn't have was, like give it given it to some up-and-coming actress that earned your way there <laughs> i will say though that actually resulted in a very interesting uh scenario for a lot of those early bond movies where you had relatively great looking international actresses from all over the place um the bond girl and dr nova was from switzerland uh, Daniela Bianchi is Italian. Uh, the Bond girl in Thunderball was French. But a lot of them didn't speak English particularly well, or their accents were too strong. Hmm. So most of their voices were actually dubbed by other actresses. Oh. So the voice that you hear in this movie is not Daniela Bianchi. It's a different actress who redubbed her lines later because apparently the original lines as they were spoken were not intelligible enough. Or they just didn't think it sounded particularly good. Hmm. So that's just an interesting aside about the actress. But I do agree what you say, what you were saying about 
the character. I, 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 I don't know if when the last time I watched it, like a movie like that was where like one character was dubbed like that. And I guess they did a pretty good job of it, though, because I didn't mm-hmm. re- I didn't realize that as I was watching it. But it, it, I don't even know how, how to even think about a performance like that then. Um, yeah, it's, it's kind of intriguing. But I do think that the character is usually underrated as just a damsel in distress who throws herself at Bond because she is also playing a role within mm-hmm. the movie. It's a performance. And I think in that sense, it's, it really gets to the heart of what Cold War intelligence gathering was all about. You had people all over the world playing these kinds of roles and trying to integrate themselves into the lives in different cities uh, by playing characters that they really weren't. And Tatiana Romanova, thinking that she is actually serving her country, is really playing her part exceptionally well. And I think that gets lost in the mix a little bit when she is evaluated as a Bond girl in the early era of the franchise. Yeah, because like you, we're going to talk about Goldfinger in a minute, but like uh, I, I'd say you can't really say the same for the woman in that movie. Uh, mm-hmm. uh, I mean, if you just like the first woman he seduces, it takes like three seconds, and uh, that obviously doesn't end well. But then even like Pussy Galore, who I mean, I think is a fairly well-known Bond girl, it's like he just seduces her in like five seconds too, and there's not really a whole lot to it. She just like can't, she just can't resist him, so she changes her side, she changes sides like right away. There's like not as much to it as there is like in For Marshall with Love, I would say. Which yeah, I mean, that's really the interesting question. Also, when does Tatiana actually fall in love? with bond yeah genuinely because you do get the sense that that happens at some point right but it's really hard to tell at what point does the performance stop and where do the genuine feelings begin so i think that makes the whole angle of her a little bit more intriguing yeah it's, it's just interesting it's not a, it's not a bad thing that you can't tell it's just like a it's it probably makes the movie more rewatchable than i'd say than some other ones even as frustrating of experiences i had watching parts of it did you have any other thoughts on any of just the the action in this movie like we we, we talked about the gypsy sequence but i i read on wikipedia which as we always say around these parts is extremely reliable mm-hmm. that the train sequence the fight with grant apparently took three weeks to film uh mm-hmm. which i was like Huh. I was trying to figure out like what was so hard about it. Then I realized like they probably just didn't have a lot of the camera technology they would have today to like make something like that happen. And uh, so I guess I mean it was pretty. It, it, it was just weird. It didn't feel like it went on for that long. But I guess a lot of a lot must have gone into that. What, what were your thoughts on how they pulled pulled that off technically? It's a pretty gritty scene, actually. First yeah. of all, it's shot completely in the dark. Mm-hmm. And what I also really appreciated was in a lot of later Bond movies, it's usually one of Q's fancy gadgets that would save the day. And in this case, it's something as simple as a knife, right? And well, also I really like... Also the tear gas and the thing kind of... True, but th- th- those I would say like fairly fairly standard tools in the big picture as opposed to a laser watch or <laughs> yeah. something that... Uh, some of the other stuff that he would get later uh, in the Roger Moore and Pierce Brosnan era. But I think it's a very intense fight sequence and much more physical than the kind of stuff they would go for later. And I think that's something that Connery also is usually remembered for as a James Bond who was a bit more physical, a little bit more angry, um, and a little bit more willing just to uh, throw punches than somebody like Roger Moore, for example, who really wasn't renowned as a particularly physical incarnation of Bond. Interesting. I, I, I guess I, like I said, it's been a while since I've seen the Roger Moore ones. So we're going to revisit some of those, and I'll be interested to see how that how, how he comes across to me as just like an action person, or if he's just there kind of playing with the gadgets, uh, and how that'll strike me as I'm going through it. But yeah, I mean, I, it, it, it was pretty intense. I, I'm and. I actually really liked some of the some of the action in Goldfinger, which we'll talk about. So, I, and I'd watched Goldfinger first, so maybe I was like comparing it to that because I think I did like the Goldfinger one better. But at the same time, I I kind of respected how intricate and difficult that must have been to do in a to do in a small space. I thought at the I thought at the the the, the end, I thought the I, I don't know I, I don't know if it was a direct homage, but the um, the him destroying the Spectre helicopter in that whole scene, it felt like a bit of an homage to North by Northwest. Uh, I don't, I don't know if that was like, a with the airplane scene there and just him running from it a lot. Like I was thinking about that. I was like, Oh, this is something I've seen before, but it's at least it's a, fun, mm-hmm. it's a, it's a funky look. It's a funky looking aircraft. So that's something. And I thought I, I it just, it, it is impressive just in those times to be able to pull off those kind of stunts with, uh, with aircraft. It could not have been easy. So I was like, all right, well, good on you guys for pulling that off. I mean, like, that's not something we see a ton of in like movies from that time. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's followed up right away by a pretty solid boat, sh- 
Bochy sequence as well, actually. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, I mean, there's, like, a lot of, like, they fit a lot of action into that, like, 10 minute, ten to 15 minutes after they get off the train between the boat and the, uh-huh. the thing in the hotel room. So, I mean, I, I don't know. I'd say it really does kind of, like, uh, gain a lot of momentum and just goes with a full head of steam all the way to the basically the last scene on the canal in the movie. And I, I kind of I kind of respected that. It just it really felt like it ramped it up and uh, was very action-packed. Uh, do you have any other thoughts on From Russia With Love before we move on? Yeah, I wanted to talk about Karen Bay a little bit, actually. Because okay, yeah, yeah. A- Is he... Is he in Doctor No? He was not. No, he was a character that was only introduced him from Russia with love. But it kind of felt like it felt like we were supposed to know more about him. I don't know. Like it, mm-hmm. it, it kind of he just kind of jumps in there, and it seems like he's already kind of like someone that the audience suspected like have a relationship with, which isn't a bad thing. I was just curious if like he was in Doctor No. Yeah, which I actually liked about that particular character. He seems very likable, kind of paternal, somebody who is in immediately trustworthy which makes him seem like someone known uh, or met. But the thing I actually wanted to touch on, and this is kind of a sad story, um, the actor who portrayed him, Pedro Amendares, mm-hmm. he actually, um, you know how he was shot uh, during the movie and he was walking around limping, kind of hurt? So they actually wrote that into the movie because he had terminal cancer while they were filming From Russia With Love. Mm. And what's very intriguing about that and kind of morbid is he was actually part of the cast of a movie called The Conqueror that was shot in the 1950s in the Utah desert where they were filming uh, nuclear bomb testing in the early 1950s. And that movie has become notorious that a lot of the cast and crew members got cancer uh, soon after the movie was shot. And Pedro Andares was diagnosed with terminal cancer shortly before filming started. So he fought his way through a lot of those scenes uh, in physical pain. But he was able to complete all of them, and then a few days after the movie wrapped, uh, he actually committed suicide. Jeez, yeah, so I just pulled that up. On a really tra- so, so a really tragic story that I just wanted to mention because it really endears the character to me even more to see somebody like that put in a performance. That's that, um, that's that charming. It wasn't like they were telling them to play like a defeated dude. They were telling them to play like a happy-go-lucky kind of like charming fellow. Yeah, and I always thought he was an incredibly likable guy. Again, especially as somebody we had only met in this movie. I think. You would, there would later be a character named Felix Leiter, who was introduced in Dr. No, who was a recurring partner that Bond would increasingly rely on in different movies. And Karen Bay sort of played that part in here as the local help, uh, the guy who sort of knew his way around and understood the, co- the culture of the country Bond was uh, visiting much better than Bond did. Mm-hmm. Um, and I really thought it was a very courageous performance given what he was going through at the time and just something i thought worth mentioning in this podcast no yeah i mean i'm kind of curious to watch the conqueror now i've never seen it and that's like this is very interesting and like, I, I i like i said i like the guy and i, I that this I, i'm kind of glad i had the experience of watching the movie not knowing that and it'll be interesting mm-hmm. to go back and watch it again someday when knowing that and examining his performance more closely but yeah i i, I think I, I, we should move on now to uh goldfinger which uh was the very next movie in the James Bond franchise after From Russia With Love. And uh, as I said earlier, it was probably a much more... Uh, is this kind of funny? Because I, I, as everyone heard, I had a lot of trouble trying to even explain the plot of uh, From Russia With Love, which I think <laughs> is, 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 a, is more of a feature than a bug, I suppose. But like, it, was just a, it was just something I couldn't help but think about as I was comparing these two movies because you know, Goldfinger is a lot more simple. Like, you kind of just like start out seeing James complete a mission that's unrelated to really the rest of the movie for the most part. He's just in Latin America on a mission and then decides to go on vacation. But what he th- what he thinks is vacation is actually the start of a new mission where MI6 is having him uh, observe an international gold dealer named Oric Goldfinger, and he <laughs> what a name yeah great name and uh, for some reason like you know I think one of the funny things about this movie is this is a movie about a spy that doesn't really try and surreptitiously spy on the guy that he's supposed to spy on. He's just all up in his business right from the get-go, which I think is funny. <laughs> he uh, blows up his card-counting scheme. He b- blows up his spot at the country club, and he's just all there the whole time. He's not actually like trying to uh, tiptoe around the guy at all. But basically, he, this guy has been uh, dealing gold all over the world, and they want to figure out how he's smuggling gold all over the world. So James needs to track him and figure it out, and they get on the James and— 
pick up on what he's doing way sooner. There is another woman that's in the picture uh, trying to uh, track down these guys and kill them also because she's on a little bit of a revenge for them killing her sister who James seduces in like five seconds at the start of the movie. After he breaks into her hotel room. Can't forget about that. Yeah, so I guess that's actually an interesting place to start because that, that, that character's name is Joe Masterson, who uh, Bond uh, seduces five seconds after uh, slapping another woman on the ass named Dink and telling her, it's man time, go away. So again, great sexual politics in these early Bond movies. And then yeah. five minutes later, he's sleeping with another woman and uh, causing her to get killed by her boss because he slept with her. So, I mean... You know, one of the interesting things, I think a couple of these other Bond movies that we're going to talk about with Elijah, uh, at least from what Elijah told me, they're a little darker. And I mean, I think some of the uh-huh. um, some of these other Daniel Craig ones are, are obviously a little bit darker than a lot of other Bond movies. But it's just kind of funny that like I think there's some of the some of the plot choices and storytelling choices are are like ripe for dramatic and dark storytelling if you want to do it. And this and this movie just doesn't really seem to have any interest in that. Like I, that was my first thought after the first ten minutes of this movie is like that is really fucked up. Like yeah. he, he just he's just I mean yeah I mean maybe he shouldn't be like maybe Goldfinger shouldn't be cheating people out of their card games but like James knows that this woman is working for this very presumably dangerous guy otherwise MI six would not have taken such an interest in him and he's going to take her to bed and. Uh, make their boss think that she's been compromised and what does he think they're going to do to her it's like that's kind of like a messed up thing james like you're kind of like largely responsible for her dying and they don't really mm-hmm. take any time to ponder on that and uh and it's really the beginning of a tradition in the bond franchise to have women serve as disposable characters who briefly interact with bond and then get killed by the villain well it happens like four times in this movie <laughs> yeah and it would keep happening in several more movies throughout the years yeah well i, I say i say it only really happens twice because it happens with jill's sister too uh who he doesn't take the bed but like i mean he and, and she kind of like it's more her choice he's not getting her roped in but they just like they really don't dwell on it and i, I mean it's like an iconic shot the shot of her okay. being painted gold like that's one of the more iconic shots i would say in any bond film and you can attest to that more so than i can so it was like he's like they kind of use this woman to create this iconic image but they don't actually like it just it seems like there's like a bit of a disconnect there between like that image and like how much time the movie actually like takes to ponder what that means within the movie itself uh and also fun fact in case uh that wasn't obvious you can't actually die from being painted in gold that is not a real thing oh. so the science that they come up with that the skin can't breathe anymore and that you'll suffocate uh that doesn't actually you, happen you can't you, you can't like breathe through one little dot that doesn't have paint on the small of your back that's not how like painting one's body works <laughs> yeah i read up on that rigorously and the scientific community has come to a consensus that that is apparently not a real thing you don't so. say, you don't say so I, I would just say like again as i indicated earlier when we were talking about from Russia with love I, I think i might have enjoyed the process of watching this movie more but that's not to say it's with, not without its flaws and i would say none more so than maybe those first 10 minutes as fun as it is to watch bond screw with goldfinger when he's trying to like cheat at cards uh the rest of that whole entire sequence is not really great in my opinion uh just uh, i don't know it just really struck it, it really struck a weird chord with me uh but then you're kind of off to the races after that and the movie like doesn't really waste any time like i said earlier it is very lean and he doesn't waste any time confronting this guy that he's supposed to be like you know getting intel on he's just all up in him and i kind of like that like i like when like villains are really smart and i'd say most bond villains probably are kind of smart a lot of them uh-huh. But I, I, actually, I should actually say he's only smart to a certain extent because we'll get to that later. But that he's smart enough to catch on. And I kind of like that. And it makes for like a more fun cat and mouse game when like uh, someone – when the guy that you're cheering for doesn't always really have the upper hand. But we know James is smart just because we go into these movies with a relationship with him. But it's kind of fun to know like, oh, wow, he might actually have a worthy adversary for at least like the first – I don't know, 80% of this movie. I got some criticisms about Goldfinger's tactics later on that I'm going to get into. <laughs> yeah, and the golf game is actually kind of fun, and I'm, oh, yeah. not, a huge, and I'm not a huge golf uh, fan by any means, but it is kind think, of enjoyable. I don't think you have to know a lot about golf. You just have to know that like uh, they had some pretty tricky sleight of hand, which I think actually is a fun little digression. Mm-hmm. And I, I always enjoyed when bond and the villain interact and you're right a lot of the villains tend to be pretty smart pretty sophisticated and obviously they 
have the capability to come up with very elaborate plans to either take over the world or put the world in terrible danger. But I always enjoyed when Bond scores small victories like that, where he shows the villain early on that he's, uh, that he's on to them and that he won't take any of their shit. And it's very enjoyable, especially because it's followed up with the wonderful shot of Oddjob throwing his hat <laughs> and cutting off the statue's head and then Goldfinger's retort that he owns uh, the golf club. So that was a whole, a very fun uh, early interaction there that I think really sets the tone for their almost playful rivalry uh, throughout the movie. Yeah, and I really like. I guess I should say I really like a lot of like the uh, the lesser. I don't know if I say lesser is the right word, but maybe a lot of the um, what might seem like just like intermediate action in this movie that aren't part of like the big set pieces. And I almost consider the golf game part of that, you know, like for Marshall with love, like obviously like the scene at the gypsy compound is like really good. The train fight scene is really good. And, but other than that, like there's not like a whole lot of action in that movie, I'd say. Um, like there's like the bomb that goes off at the station, but, and I guess the, I guess there's the chase scene too, but like, I kind of liked a lot of the, mm-hmm. some of the smaller stuff in here too, where you have uh, at the same time where you have like, a fun golf game like that. And then you also have like the, the car chases and all that scenery going on right there and stuff that seems like it's kind of in the middle of some of the bigger scenes, but I think it still finds a way to like be really suspenseful throughout. And there's not a lot of lulls because of that, you know? See, my biggest problem with Goldfinger is actually, I think you're absolutely right. How you described it. It's a lot leaner. It's a lot of fun. Um, And I think it kind of sets the template for what the Bond franchise would eventually become, Hmm. uh, which is um, about the fancy cars, where he has all of those fun gadgets that he gets to deploy in chases, uh, the megalomaniac villain with the elaborate plan. Um, But the car chase, especially around uh, Goldfinger's compound in Switzerland, I didn't really get a sense that that scene was in service of a bigger a bigger goal than just to display all of the fancy gadgets in the car. Oh, oh, I actually wasn't even thinking about that one when I said that. I was thinking about more the one where it looks like Tilly is chasing him, but she's not actually. I kind of like that one. Oh, Oh, that's a lot. Yeah, that's a good scene. I I actually like that that more. I actually like that more than the one like Compound. I kind of agree that the Compound was just kind of like, there wasn't a lot to that scene, really. Yeah, it's just Bond driving in circles, essentially, like using up his uh, machine guns that are installed in the car, uh, the ejector Mm -hmm. seat, and that's all good fun, but it's not really meant to... uh, sort of further the plot at all it's just oh we're showing off what we gave bond here because hugh presented it to him early on so now he obviously has to make use of it at some point i actually think the ejector seat is very weird too like that's a very odd gadget like i i i'd seen the movie before but like i said it had been a while and i forgot that that was the way it got used because it's like why would you have like the one ejector seat only be for the passenger seat like it seems like mm-hmm. much more it's, it's, are they contemplating like the, the the driver of the car like being held at gunpoint like it would seem to make more sense if you're going to be able to eject one person you'd want the driver to be able to eject if he's about to like get thrown off a cliff or something <laughs> i always wondered if uh the writers of the bond movies write the scene with q last and just kind of fit in, <laughs> the, te- fit in the technology that they already used in the movie at that point to kind of explain okay this is what we're going to see later in the movie and obviously we already wrote those scenes so now we need to find a way to incorporate it into whatever car or whatever gadget uh, Bond is going to get before he starts his mission. Yeah, you know, and I, I guess I would agree with you that maybe that one scene right there might be the one that I feel like you could almost cut out and the movie doesn't really lose anything. There's maybe a more efficient way just to kind of get Bond captured. Um, and I guess you got, I guess they had to kill Tilly too because you got to dip like, like you said, that's just a thing they did. Uh, but and you get to see Odd Job actually like use his hat for that which we'll get we'll talk about his hat later i got some questions about that but uh Uh one thing in the moment that i was like confusing but i was like oh that actually makes a lot of sense was how bond talks himself out of getting killed which i thought was like actually kind of a smart scene and pretty suspenseful Uh not that you actually think bond's gonna get his uh his uh crotch lasered off but like uh it it still is kind of suspenseful because i mean how how many times had like lasers really been a part of movies before um i'm thinking at that point too i mean like good question uh, yeah um i mean 
again, I, I'm, I maybe it's maybe not the best question for me to be throwing out there because I'm still on a quest to like become much more well versed in movies of the 40s and 50s. I'm doing a better job of it in quarantine and getting into the Criterion Channel. But I mean, I haven't seen a lot of lasers in the movies from the 40s and 50s I've watched over the last <laughs> couple of months. So it was I was thinking like, oh man, this must have been this is pretty suspenseful to me, and it had to have been like uh, something pretty. Uh, wild for people to watch at the time because how many times had they actually seen like lasers in action like that and that mm-hmm. was pretty cool and i was like oh man are they gonna like not that i thought like i said i didn't I think bond was gonna actually die or anything but i was like oh wow like are they, are they gonna like how much are we gonna see him sweat because how, how often do you really see james sweat and i did actually feel like you saw him get a little worried there which i think counts for something because you know he's gonna make it um and and i think it's also a good showcase for Bond's ability to talk himself out of sticky situations. He did something very similar in From Russia with Love, actually, uh, when Grant held him at gunpoint and he told him, oh, there's, there are gold coins in my suitcase. But Don't yeah, you want to open it and get the money? So I think he always, even in the most dangerous situations, has an ability to think coolly enough to maybe... Well, they're present actually, the villain with a uh, present the villain with uh, a scenario where it would be better for them to keep him alive or delay his death long enough that he can come up with a plan to save himself. That was just him remembering that he actually did have some gold coins in that thing, and in in this one though, I was like, wait, how did he just convince him to do that? But it actually kind of made sense where he was able to like bluff and be like, look, I mean, they kind of like are waiting to pounce, but they're not going to pounce if uh, if they think I'm doing my job. So mm-hmm. it was actually like a really kind of smart point for him to make to like keep himself alive. And I, I kind of appreciated like that was like an interesting, like smart way for him to like talk himself out of something that didn't seem like, I don't know, just like a, a dumb bluff that shouldn't have worked. Like it actually made sense for all involved for like them to keep going at like with him as prisoner. Like it, it totally made sense. Mm-hmm. But yeah, so then, then they get they, they, they get on the plane. Uh, we meet Pussy Galore. And he's taken into this compound and learns about the he gets uh you get the kind of the kind of the scene which is I guess a, a bit of a hallmark of not necessarily even just Bond movies but a lot of movies where there's a grand villain he, he lays out his entire plan for Bond Goldfinger does and he um is kind of taking out some of his other uh, business associates there and gonna kind of steal all this gold for a second after he gets a bit of a payoff from some of them. Is, is that what he's doing? It's like, what, he's, it's like the mafioso? He's getting, I don't know, he, he takes out a lot of the guys he's there conspiring with. And we kind of learn his big plan to, like, uh, make Fort Knox unusable. I actually kind of thought mm-hmm. it was a smart plan. What do you think about that master plan as compared to any other Bond movies? I think it's very emblematic of uh, sort of the exemplary, grand, ridiculous idea that Bond villains would come up with in the future. And Goldfinger sort of pioneered that scheme. <laughs> and, and, I th- and, you know, I think that it's, uh, it's pretty clever, too, because Bond, he's all smug about the fact that he was doing the math while he was uh, in his cell. And he tells Goldfinger, there's no way you're going to pull this off. I ran some numbers and there's no way you can cart off all the gold. It would take days and you don't have days, obviously. And Goldfinger just sits there smiling and then tells him, well, actually, I'm not as dumb as you think I am. And here's why. And I thought that was actually pretty clever, the way they did that, because, you know, Goldfinger, throughout the entire movie, Bond often gets the upper hand on him, right? At the very beginning in the hotel, he interrupts his card game and blows his scheme. Uh, he calls uh, Goldfinger's uh, love at the golf course and beats him that way, too. And this is really the one time where Goldfinger kind of outwitted him. And I think it really uh, speaks well to that particular character, that he was able to come up with a big, elaborate, complicated plan that even Bond couldn't figure out until Goldfinger so gratuitously spelled it out for him. Right, and I guess it even made sense for Goldfinger to let Bond walk around with pussy galore. Like, you can't, like, count on someone, like, falling in love with James Bond in, like, five minutes. And it was actually kind of smart where he's like, oh, well, I know I'm getting tailed, and these guys are, again, still going to think that Bond has it under the control if he sees him walking around with a beautiful woman. They know Bond. Mm -hmm. So I was like, all right, I'm kind of with you up until this point. Uh, Goldfinger and because like I don't blame him for not thinking that like he's going to be able to like turn pussy galore in five minutes and get her to like all of a sudden communicate with the entire uh, change out all of her planes with all the poison gas and and communicate to the entire military that hey he's not actually going to come or this is you got to like all fake like you're dead like I don't blame Goldfinger for not seeing that coming but do you know where he lost my respect and what his fatal flaw was I'm curious. 
not just murdering James. Like at that point, like once mm-hmm. before they, it, it was almost just for the sake of plot. Maybe this is more in the writers than Goldfinger. I don't know, but it's like, yeah, I just I, I want to tie you up and blow you up with the rest of this thing. Like, mm-hmm. there's no reason for them to bring James into Fort Knox. Like, it just didn't make sense. And I mean, I I get it. Like, he, James Bond has to be there for the final fight, but like. I think there should have been like some other way of getting him there that didn't make Goldfinger look so stupid, in my opinion. And I don't know if that's a, I, I, I that's just maybe it's something I'm getting hung up on that I shouldn't get hung up on. But for <laughs> it was just like this this villain legit had my respect for like the entire runtime of the movie till that I was like I would have rather like James outsmarted him than him just like make an unforced error if that makes sense, you know? Right, and of course you needed that iconic final shot when the clock is stopped at double oh seven. When they just—that's uh, when they disarm the bomb at the end. That's the number they leave oh, it on. Oh, right, right, right. I, I honestly didn't catch that in a moment, but yes. That's so good. that, yeah. So of course he needs to show that as well. But no, and I do agree. Not only is Goldfinger a pretty grandstanding and impressive villain, it's also a very solid performance by a German actor, incidentally, who was also dubbed for the part because his German was unintelligible. Huh? Which I—that's interesting. Which, I found that interesting, too. Why do you need to I cast think, a German if you're just going to dub it? Exactly. That was also my question, because I figured, huh, that was kind of the thing that they went for in the 1960s. World War II had just ended 15, 20 years earlier. The Germans were still still seen as the big international villains. Why not take advantage of a strong German accent, rewrite the character a little bit so that he's German? It would have made him even more intimidating, perhaps. So I found that a little bit strange, because... It seems like he feels very comfortable playing this villainous role, and I was surprised that they made that decision ultimately to replace his voice. It's funny. I just had the thought, like, yeah, I mean, like, why couldn't they have just done a better search like Quentin Tarantino did in Inglorious Bastards? And I was like, oh, wait, oh, wait, Christoph Waltz ended up being a Bond villain anyway. I, I, literally, had that, I literally had that thought before I got to, like, all the way to that point with Christoph Waltz. I was like, oh, yeah, like, they ultimately went in that direction anyway 50 years later. Um, uh, but yeah, so like, I, I don't know, like good performance. And like, I, I, I didn't know that. Like I said, I, I kind of read the Wikipedia plot summaries for this stuff just to refresh myself before uh, we did the pod, but like, I didn't actually go down to the cast. So not, not until each of we got to each of these points in the discussions about these movies that I realized I was watching dub performances, which is, which is interesting. Cause like, I'm not one that watches dubbed movies. Like when I have the choice, I'll obviously I'll go for the subtitles. So I don't have mm-hmm. a lot of experience watching that, but I do feel like in a lot of instances, it's it's even in more modern movies when I do see it, it seems like sometimes a little more obvious than it even was in these Bond movies. So they did it pretty seamlessly. I'll give them that. Um, mm-hmm. Speaking of subtitles and yeah. characters who don't need subtitles, sure. uh, what did you think of Harold Cicada's performance as Oddjob? Well, uh, yeah, that's, uh, that was where I was going to kind of want to take it because I, as much as I didn't like how James ends up in Fort Knox, I really loved that final fight. I mean, aside oh, yeah. from Oddjob as a character, I really loved it because Oddjob is like basically inhuman. Just as a, it, it's hard to believe that's like a being, someone that's built like that, that is as strong mm-hmm. as that, that is basically a machine. But for it felt like for for such an unrealistic, and I don't mean that der- derisively. He's just he's unrealistic in that he's like a machine. For such an unrealistic character, it was such a realistic fight that final scene and how clumsy it was. And, Uh you know, we're so used to seeing action movies, even in modern Bond films or other action movies have like really, really impressive, swift, seamless, smooth hand to hand combat that like is choreographed down to like the very, very smallest of details. And this is just two guys throwing each other around in like a very Uh clumsy way for five minutes. And I really like that fight. So I will say that about that sequence is like kind of cool to see how odd job operates throughout the whole movie and how smooth he is and how efficient he is and how ruthless he is. And then he just gets involved in like the most clumsy fight ever, but it still feels super realistic. But I really like him as a character. Like I, I was complaining about how they used Dave Batista uh, before in Spectre. And I was like, and he doesn't have any, he doesn't play a mute guy like odd job, but like he's, he just doesn't really, they don't give him any lines. It's stupid. And here it's like I, I he's it's such a good performance where I feel like I really have a good sense of that guy's personality without him saying anything much more so than I did with someone like Batista in that movie and I I, I think I think it's just really impressive that like this guy like really made me feel like I have a great sense of just how this guy operates and the attitude with which he does it without words it's very impressive and it's interesting that you bring up Batista as a comparison because they actually do have something else in common they're both professional wrestlers 
And I think that's why Harold Cicada was actually a really interesting choice for that part, particularly for that final fight, because I assumed that they didn't use a stuntman. I figured that he was actually the guy who was doing the fighting there. Yeah, and interesting. My impression is that he probably had. Uh, I did not know. That, I, I did not know that about him being a wrestler. I don't know very much about wrestling. I'm just seeing now he won a silver medal in the Olympics in 1948 mm-hmm. for for weightlifting. So I guess he then went into wrestling after that. But I, I guess I don't have a great sense of like how far back wrestling goes. But that's interesting. Yeah, and obviously a very physical guy. You can always uh, have a bit of a debate on whether it's necessarily the most flattering portrayal of uh, Asians that he's mute. And never really gets to speak. And I also find it fascinating that most of Goldfinger's henchmen are actually Asian, even though it's never really mentioned that he has an Asian connection, except for Oddjob being his manservant. Um, But I do think that he was definitely, when you look back at the long history of the Bond franchise, one of the most memorable villains. And in part, that's also because he was a genuinely intimidating guy. Um, The silliness with the hat aside, um, having a physical build like that and being able to really just throw Bond around like that uh, in the final fight scene and Bond having to use a trick essentially to take him out ultimately. I think that speaks very well to the kind of character that they envisioned him to be. Yeah, 5'10", 284, which, I mean, I, which is weird. I, I, if, if Watching the movie, if you had told me to guess his dimensions, I would have said like 5'5", like five, five, 200. Like he, he looks shorter, but he still looks extremely sturdy. So like he, mm-hmm. he doesn't feel that tall. I, I like to say, uh, if, if I am like five nine and three quarters, I wish I could say I was five ten. But if you had told me before just <laughs> now, when 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 I was looking at uh, Goldfinger's, uh, uh, or I was looking at uh, Harold Zakeda's, uh Wikipedia, and I saw he was five ten, like if you had told me, Josh, you are shorter than Odd Job, I would have been like, get out of here, no way. But I guess I'm, <laughs> I, guess I'm I guess I'm shorter than Odd Job, which is very humbling. Yeah, makes you. I don't know how tall Connery is, but yeah, he does seem pretty tall compared to Audrey in those scenes. Yeah. But uh, I guess the difference can't be that much. No, I mean, I, I suppose not. So, uh, but yeah, I mean, just like a, a great villain. I mean, it's kind of crazy. I mean, like I'm sure as I watch some more of these Bond movies, maybe a couple of the ones I watch like won't have great villains because not all of them do. Uh, mm-hmm. But like, it's kind of crazy that like I would say this had this movie has two great ones when there are some that don't have any. And I think that's also something that is very important for any Bond movie to have a memorable villain because Bond is ultimately a character that we know very well now. We know what his uh, strengths are and we know his many flaws uh, as a human being. So it's always important to have a strong counterpart to him, somebody who's actually a worthy adversary. And the Bond movies weren't always capable of pulling that off, but Gerd Frobe and Harold Cicada really set the stage for that really great supervillain and henchman pairing that we really didn't get to see again that often in such a strong execution. Uh, some of the movies were able to pull it off. I'm trying to think uh, of good examples right now. We're going to talk at some point in this couple of months about Man with a Golden Gun. I haven't seen that one in a while, but I feel like yes. I remember that one having a pretty good, uh, pretty good opposing uh, side there. Um, yep, that is probably a good one. Um, I would say Goldeneye in some ways probably qualifies as well. Hmm. Um, but, but in most ways, they never really managed to pull it off as strongly. And I think that's also why Goldfinger is remembered so fondly by a lot of fans, because that was the first time they really got it right. Gotcha. All right. Anything else about this one, Fred, that I didn't touch on that you want to mention before we wrap up? Uh, the theme song? Oh, one yeah. The, that's, uh, that's a good theme song. Mm-hmm. One of the big iconic ones uh, by Shirley Bassey, her first of three theme songs that she actually did for the Bond franchise. Um, And it really set the stage for having star power in the opening credits. Hmm. Because ever since then, they always tried to get big name performers and singers uh, to record a song. um, I don't know. It it also made me kind of like, yeah. Well, I would say it also made me kind of like, just kind of disappointed in what they've done recently with these songs. I mean, um, Maybe I'm not the best one to speak to like what what is good when we're talking about someone like Billie Eilish, but like that song that she did for No Time to Die that has already been released, even though the movie hasn't been released, or uh, even the last couple of ones. Like, I mean, I I like Skyfall, the song okay, and how Adele sings it, but like it seems like 
this the, the song in Goldfinger has so much more energy than that one. And uh-huh. I mean, everyone was very upset when Sam Smith won the Oscar for uh, Spectre. I mean, no one really it seemed like no one liked that song. Uh, but like, I don't know. It just seems like recent years, like they've just gone with like these very boring ballads that don't have a lot of life to them. Whereas like, I don't know, like Goldfinger was like interesting that it was like, it's like a ballad, but like, it was very like exciting and at times like very upbeat and almost it's weird. Like I, I just, I found myself really taken with it much more so than anyone we've gotten in a recent movie. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it's, uh, it really shows what a powerful voice can do for your theme song. And I don't know. I think in recent years, they just tried a little bit too hard to go for the in pop stars of the day. And they tried a little bit too hard to find uh, people who would perform songs that would sell well as well and uh, play on the radio and get a lot of downloads. Yeah, I can't. And, I just, I, I did, like that Billie Eilish song just doesn't seem like a radio hit. Like, it's just so slow. Like, I don't see that people bumping that in their cars. Um, see, that's so I actually heard it a few times in my car, uh, but the problem is I haven't driven a lot recently, so I don't know if it's good at their time. But I, know, I remember Skyfall being played pretty often, actually, when it yeah, came out. And yeah. then the one before that was by Alicia Keys and Jack White. Um, nobody really liked that one, but again, star power behind that one. That was for Quantum of Solace? And then, of, of course, Quantum of Solace. Yeah, I don't, yes. remember, that. I don't remember that and song. Then, and then, of course, Madonna did hers for Die Another Day, which is... A very squeaky, uh, synthy song that most people didn't care for either. I think it fits kind of nicely with the opening credits, but in isolation, it's really not a great song at all. Right. So it's nice to go back to some of the early day Bond themes and realize that they really tried to find stars that fit with the mood of the film and set the stage early on for what the next hour and a half, two hours uh, would be all about. Definitely. All right, Fred. Well, I uh, I think I think that about wraps it up. Um, I I think we did a good job of kind of like at least talking about these two movies and uh, different things that people can take from this era of Bond. And I hope they'll join us as we kind of move into the '70s and talk about Roger Moore. We we'll probably do one where we'll talk about the Timothy Dalton and George Lazenby movies because those are uh, kind of stand apart in their own way. And we'll probably revisit a more modern time. So I hope everyone wants to come back and listen when we talk about those. And unfortunately, it seems like we're gonna have plenty of time to do that. And all of you are gonna have plenty of time to watch it so no excuses uh fred fred before we get out of here um i i think more 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 so important than usual is our recommendation corner because we're we're having everyone that does these podcasts talk about what they're watching while in quarantine because people have more time than ever to actually take people up on these recommendations so um aside from revisiting the bond movies for the purposes of this podcast have you watched anything new recently that you want to direct people to Uh two things i would like to recommend both on netflix uh, the first one from my home country is a TV show called Babylon Berlin, uh, which is in German uh, with English subtitles, but there is an English dub. I do not recommend it. It's horrendous. Watch it in German with subtitles. Uh, it's set in 1920s Berlin, and it's really exciting in the interwar period in Germany where there was a bit of an economic boom and people were having fun uh, until, of course, things stopped being fun altogether there. So very exciting, very well done show. Highly recommend it. The second thing on Netflix I'm uh, advocating for, and I cannot believe I am saying this, <laughs> is please watch Never Have I Ever. It's a show that's produced by Mindy Calling. It's Kaling. absolutely Kaling. I apologize, uh, which would tell you that I usually don't really. Uh, you weren't a big fan of the mini. The you, weren't, you, you, you weren't a fan of the mini project. <laughs> I don't even know. Is that a show? I never even watched or heard of it. Yeah, that was honest. what she did like after The Office. Like she made her own show where she plays like a, I think a dentist or a dermatologist or something. And I, I only, I've, I've watched a few episodes of it, but like that was what she did for a while before like she got back into like making movies and stuff. Oh, no kidding. Well, so you should see, you see so, that I'm usually not really a fan yeah, of her so work. What is never, I've, I've seen it's got some good press. What's that about? Oh, it's terrific. So it's about a girl in high school and uh, unfortunately her father passed away a couple of months ago and she's going through uh, a very depressing period of course but uh, a new school year is about to begin her sophomore year and she and her two friends decide that they want to become more socially involved make new friends and a big part of that is of course that they all want to get boyfriends Mm. so uh, this doesn't sound like the kind of premise I would normally enjoy at all uh, we're three episodes in now, Logan and I, and it's absolutely hilarious. Haven't laughed this loud and this hard in ages. Wow. And 
I think we could all use a good laugh these days, uh, considering many of us are sitting at home and getting bombarded with bad news, sometimes hearing bad news from our friends, our families. Uh, this is the exact right thing to cheer you up. I highly recommend it. Please give it a chance. Okay, well, I mean, like, I knew it was getting good reviews, but I didn't realize it was actually like that funny. I just, I sitting just, at I, a 97% on Rotten Tomatoes right now, this will get nominations at the Emmys and the Golden wow, Globes. Okay, good. Like, I'd, I'd seen some good press for it, but I didn't realize it was actually that like laugh out loud funny. So I'm, I'm, I'm now more even, even more curious to check it out. I was probably going to get around to it at some point. I'll, I'll recommend a movie and a TV show also. Uh, Movie-wise, I watched Warrior last weekend, which it was talked about a decent amount when The Way Back came out because The Way Back, the Ben Affleck movie from a, that came out right as the crisis was starting, was directed by Gavin O'Connor, who uh, was – Got some people kind of knew him from the accountant, but like he was more well respected from doing Warrior in 2011 with Tom Hardy and Joel Edgerton. And I, I, I know next to nothing about UFC. Like I just don't know anything about mixed martial arts or any of that stuff. And the movie's about kind of two brothers that have taken different paths in life that end up kind of coming back. Uh, into each other's periphery through uh, training to in a, for a mixed martial arts competition. And I just found, found it very, very engaging and very exciting and uh, very intense and uh, very good Nick Nolte performance too, which is always weird when you can say that, but you know, he popped up, <laughs> he popped up in the Mandalorian. So it's just kind of weird when you know, you know how some guy has such a weird off-screen persona, but then he can really bring it in a serious role. So um, I, I, I really, I really enjoyed that movie and found it really, and if, if you actually like, even like UFC in the slightest, then you'll probably really love it because i really liked it too uh and i watched dave uh little dicky show on fxx i watched the whole thing last weekend um because and i really i kind of had it on my radar because i mean I, i'm not even that big of a little dicky fan i mean i've watched a couple of his music videos before but like i i i knew of uh some of the people involved in it like a little bit like uh, one of the actresses i was a little familiar with and i just I, I had one other friend tell me to check it out, but then I saw Alan Seppenwall gave it a very positive review once the season wrapped up, and the movie does or the season does kind of start out as just like a, a show about this kind of goof off trying to be a rapper. It's semi autobiographical or kind of just like an altered version of him playing himself, and you kind of think it's going to be just him making dick jokes and kind of flailing around in the music industry, but it turns into something more substantial than that, and certainly more heartfelt and deals with things like you know. Uh, mental illness and being selfish in relationships and stuff like that, while also having plenty of funny stuff that you would expect from someone like Little Dicky, whose entire persona is about the f- fact that he makes fun of himself for having a little dick. So, I mean, <laughs> it, it, find, it finds room for all that kind of stuff, and it's only 10 episodes that are mostly about a half an hour, so it's not too big of a commitment. So, yeah, I I'd, I'd highly recommend both of those things. Fred, thanks again for taking the time to join us. Uh, if people want to follow you on Letterboxd, where can they do that? Yes, please do follow me. It's Frederick uh, Kolb, F-R-E-D-K-O-L-B. I'm looking forward to hopefully posting about new movies again soon. Oh, God. Well, I mean, you might have a little while to go before that, but I mean, uh, for any movie that we kind of talk about on here that Fred's watched in the last couple of years, he does very good letterbox write-ups, so you can go check that out. Maybe he'll do that as he's revisiting some of these Bond movies. If he hasn't already done that, you might have already done that for some of these Bonds, because I'm guessing you probably rewatched some of them over the last couple of years since you got a letterbox. Uh, you can also follow me on letterbox, Josh Renovoy, J-O-S-H-J-U-R-N-O-V-O-Y, and Twitter, the same thing podcast is on twitter at rewind movie pod podcast gmail is rewind movie pod at gmail.com or so you can hit me up in any of those places if you want to suggest a movie we should talk about while we're in quarantine because i'm kind of like just kind of going off of things i have an interest in watching or someone pitches me like fred did with this bond stuff so um i'm taking any suggestions because you know as much as i want to be talking about new movies soon too like fred there's a chance we're not going to be doing it for some time so we're going to kind of make way here by just kind of finding other interesting things to revisit so uh and fred will be back at some point in the next couple months to talk about some more Bond movies and maybe other movies as well. So everyone stay tuned for that and we'll see you next week.